Tragically, it's possible to come to church and not really engage with God. Tragically, it's possible to sing songs to God and listen to God's Word and not really engage with God. And so let me invite you, as we pray together, to engage with your God, to be in His presence, to hear from Him, to listen to Him, to be close to Him, to draw near to Him, all of those things that we are called to do. As we pray together, listen to the exhortation of Psalm 62. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him, God is a refuge for us. Let's run to that refuge now. O Father, O Son, O Spirit, blessed triune God, we come to find refuge in you. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. So, Lord, would you help us to find refuge and shelter in your mighty arms in this moment? We pray that you would help us to find you to be a faithful shield and buckler for us, to defend us. We, th- we pray you'd help us to see you as glorious and beautiful and worthy to be trusted in the midst of every possible circumstance we face today. We stand here, Lord, in your presence, taking refuge in you because you're our only hope. Your strong refuge, your mighty fortress is the only place to find shelter and safety in all of this world. So God, help us to run, help us to run with all our might to you. From wherever it is we come, from whatever it is we're facing, Lord, help us now to run to you and to rest in you. We thank you for meeting us here. We're, we're sorry for being so fickle. We're sorry for being so sinful. We're sorry for being so idolatrous. God, forgive us for the ways in which we've found shelter and refuge in other things and other people. Help us to see you as the only refuge for our souls. And help us to say with the psalmist, because you're my refuge, I will not be shaken. Oh God, the feet, our feet is firm when we stand on you, when we stand on this solid rock. So Lord, as we open your word now, we pray that you would teach us. We want to engage with you. We want to hear from you. We want you to speak your authoritative truth and your word to our souls so that we would believe it, embrace it, and live it out in these lives you've given us. Thank you for what a privilege it is to be here in this holy moment. Thank you for what a privilege it is to be with your people this morning, to sing your praises, to hear from your word. It is, it is a great joy. Thank you for making all this possible through the blood of Jesus, through the cross of Jesus. Thank you so much for adopting us into your own family, making us your sons and your daughters. We praise you. You are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. We pray you'd receive that praise, even as I preach and even as we all listen to your word. Receive the praise of our hearts. I pray you'd teach us in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. You can be seated. As you're seated, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 8, the great 8. If you need a Bible, if you don't have one with you, you can find a pew Bible in the rack in front of you. Romans 8 starts on page 944 of the pew Bible. Earlier this week, someone asked me what the sermon text was for this Sunday, and I said, without really even thinking, I said something like, I'm going to attempt to preach on Romans 8, 28. And I think I said attempt sort of subconsciously, not really thinking about it, because I feel the weight of just how daunting this verse is to, to sort of feel like you did an adequate job of explaining and applying this particular promise is a, an incredibly daunting task. There is so much here, and this verse is so foundational that I'm confident this sermon won't even come close to exhausting this verse. And so, all that to say, adjust your expectations. This is more of like an introduction to this verse than, than any attempt to satisfy it fully. Romans 8 28. I want us to read it out loud together. It's just one verse. It's on the screen here behind me in the English Standard Version. And so if you don't have the ESV, you can read it off the screen. But let's read this out loud together. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Wow. And we know... For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. No series on the promises of God would be adequate without delighting in this promise in Romans 8.28. And I do want you to see that it's a promise. It doesn't have the word will or shall here in this verse like we're used to seeing with the promises. Some promise of future grace. But notice this is a promise. It's in the present tense, which is a progressive tense. Paul says all things work together. That is currently, currently, right now, all things are working together. And the implication of this is that they will continue to work together for good. And so while it doesn't say all things will work together for good, it says they are working together for good now. And that means they will continue to work for good in the future. And so this is... This is a promise. And in many ways, this promise is a foundational promise to the Christian life. One, I think, that supports and upholds so many other promises and convictions that we have as believers in Jesus. Think about how the foundation of a building works. The foundation of a building literally supports the entire structure. You can build a structure with the finest materials. You can have the most intricate, detailed blueprints. But if the foundation is somehow off, the whole building is going to be off. The building could be completely square. But if the foundation shifts, the walls will crack. Some of you dealt with foundation issues at your house and you know just how important a foundation is. And so what's the foundation that you're building your life upon? Are you wasting time plastering the walls, trying to make it look better cosmetically on the outside, all the the while your foundation is shaky? 
If all you do is caulk the gaps and ignore the foundation in your house, your life, it will eventually crumble. And I believe Romans 8.28 is in the Bible to give God's people a massive foundation to build their lives upon. I've been so excited to preach this verse because, because I feel like I live with this verse like, like literally as the foundation of everything else. I don't, that's not that I'm always thinking about this, but it's so foundational that everything else gets meaning and orbits around this truth. I'm, I'm zealous for those of you who, who live in a Romans 8.28 less world. I'm zealous for you to, to have this as a, something that's a foundation for you for the rest of your life. I'm zealous that you know and believe this promise for the rest of the days God gives you. And so let's stare hard at this one verse this morning. Let's hear it. Let's believe it. Let's build our lives upon it. This truth declares to us at least three foundational truths that I want us to marvel at. Three foundational truths from this promise. Number one, God is in control of all things. Do you see this in the text? This promise says God is in control of all things. I love to declare this truth from all over Scripture. God's comprehensive and all-encompassing sovereignty is a comforting and foundational truth to the Christian life. Notice that Paul says, all things work together for good. Now, what if Paul had not said all things, but rather said something like, most things or some things work together for good? Now, I submit to you that would be more than we deserve, but this would, that would make this really a meaningless promise for our everyday lives, wouldn't it? Because we would never know if our thing was going to work together for our good. If only some things or most things work together for good, we would never really know if, if the thing happening to us, if the thing in our life was going to work together for good. It would be maddening to believe that there are some things that exist, some things that happen to us that aren't for our good, that are for our ultimate harm. But Paul clearly says all things. And just in case we can't bring ourselves to sort of believe that Paul actually meant all things, like someone could argue that Paul was just exaggerating here for a fact. He didn't really mean all things. However, I think the context of Romans 8 makes clear that when Paul says all things, he means everything. He means hardship and suffering and evil. He means it all. In verse 18 of Romans 8, Paul mentions that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. Which is essentially what he's teaching here in Romans 8.28. In Romans 8, Paul says that we groan with creation because of our sin. Paul ends Romans 8 by emphatically declaring that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not sore, not death, nor things to come, nor things present. Nothing. And so I think it's clear that when Paul says all things, he means everything. He means all things, both good and bad. Everything that happens to those who love God and are called according to his purpose work out for their good. There's nothing that can happen to us, Paul says, that won't be for our good. All things means 
all things. Now, how can we be sure that it is God who controls all things and will work them out? The ESV, as you can see, translates this as all things work together. It's almost as if you you could read this and think that this is just sort of an inevitable law of the universe that Paul is just sort of espousing here, right? Kind of like gravity. What goes up must come down and all things work out in the end. All things will be okay in the end. Is that what Paul is saying? That it's just a given in the universe that things are going to work out for good eventually? No, the implied subject, the implied actor of this promise is God. In fact, there's some manuscript difficulty in this verse. You can see in the footnote to the ESV that some reliable manuscripts say explicitly that God works all things together for good. You might have memorized this verse in the NIV or the NASB, which translates Romans 8.28 that way to make this point clear. God works all things together for our good. But whichever translation you prefer here, the sovereignty of God is clearly implied all things don't just work out for good on their own but rather God does this God works them out together for our good he is the cause he is the orchestrator of all that is it is his hand guiding and ordaining all things Psalm 115:3 says our God is in the heavens he does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. So what does he please? What is it that God pleases? Well, Romans 8.28 would teach us that what God pleases to do is to work all things together for our good. Ephesians 1.11 describes God as the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Romans 8.28 says that his will is that all things be worked together for the good of those he's called. Proverbs 16.33 says that even the roll of the dice, the casting of the lots, is controlled by our God. Which is mind-blowing to think about when you think about all the dice that were rolled in Las Vegas last night. God controls them all. He orchestrates every role. He controls plants and animals and people and kings and pestilence and disease and death. All things. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said it like this. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Spurgeon says, he who believes in God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There's no halfway between an almighty God who works all things according to the good pleasure of his will and no God at all. End quote. Friends, members of Miller Heights Baptist Church, Romans 8.28 declares that God is in control of all things. 
He is on the throne and there is nothing, not a single atom out of place outside of his sovereign control. Paul says, we know this. We are sure of this, Paul says. This is a rock-solid foundation to build our lives upon, to stand on in a world that seems to us, that seems from our perspective like it's random and haphazard. Life seems like it's just a series of random and haphazard events, but as Christians, we don't believe that. As Christians, we don't believe in chance or in luck or in karma. We believe in a sovereign God who controls all things. And to what end does he control all things? That's what the second foundational truth I want you to see from this verse reminds us of. Number two, God wastes nothing. God is in control of all things and God wastes nothing. Now, for a while this week, as I was preparing the sermon, I actually had this in the positive. God uses everything. I believe that. God uses everything that happens to us. But I think it, it's a little bit more shocking to hear it in the negative. God wastes nothing. And by waste nothing, I mean the promise of this verse that God will work all things for good if we love him. Romans 8.28 says that everything in our lives, good, bad, righteous, evil, sinful, shameful, thrilling, everything is orchestrated to bring good to us. In other words, God never wastes the circumstances of our lives. He is in control and he uses everything, all things, for our good, to do us good. Listen, you've never had a tear or a pain, or a heartache, or a sorrow, or a grief that wasn't designed by God for your good if you love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, the most important clarification that we have to hear about Romans 8.28 is this. You and I don't get to define what good is. You and I don't get to define what good means. You can't interpret this promise according to what you think is good for you. Because listen, you and I, we have no idea what good is apart from God. God is good and he defines what is good for us. If God says it's good for us, it doesn't matter whether we see it as good or not. It is good for us. Whatever God designs, we can know it will be worked for our good according to God's definition of good. That's what Romans 8.28 is teaching. Now, please understand, this verse does not say everything is good. Do you see that? This verse does not say everything is good. This is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky, Lego movie, everything-is-awesome kind of mumbo-jumbo. There is real pain and tragedy and sin and evil and bad in this world. And we are part of that. None of us are good. None of us are righteous. We have all sinned and we do wicked things. This verse does not say everything is good. This verse says God takes everything, including the evil stuff, including the wicked stuff, and he works it together. He weaves it together 
for our ultimate good. What happens to us, what we do, what others do to us, it may be extremely bad and something we should grieve over. But if we love Jesus, the result will always be good according to God's definition of good. Do you see that? Now, what helps me understand God's definition of good a little bit better is in the next verse, in verse 29. So in verses 29 and 30, Paul gives us the golden chain of salvation. He says that because we know God foreknew us and predestined us and called us and justified us, He will most certainly also glorify us. In other words, God finished what He starts. If God chose us in eternity past, he will also secure us an eternity future. But right in the middle of this unbreakable chain of salvation, Paul says that God's purpose is to conform us to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And so Paul is saying the design of God, the purpose of God for our lives is to make us more like Jesus. That's the end for which he created us and saved us. And I think Paul is teaching that being like Jesus is the good that God designs for all of his children. Being like Jesus is the goal of God orchestrating all things for your good. To be like Jesus is the ultimate good for us. And so God will work all things together for good means that the circumstances of our lives, the suffering, the grief we experience, they are designed to make us more like Jesus, which is the definition of good. See, God is not after making us healthy and satisfied in this world. God is after making us more like Jesus. And God doesn't waste any hurt or pain in that process. In his goal to make us like Jesus, he uses all the circumstances to do that. He doesn't waste any of them. God defines good for us as conforming us to the image of our Savior. In fact, God is going to weave together. You, you see this, this phrase, work together? S love this phrase. God is going to weave the circumstances together in our lives to make this beautiful and breathtaking tapestry that shows off the beauty of Jesus for all eternity. Have you ever seen the underside of a quilt that hasn't been backed yet? It looks like a mess, right? It's threads all over the place, different colors, different lengths. But if you see the front side of the quilt, it's a beautiful masterpiece. See, most of the time, all we see is the backside all we see is the mess, right? Life looks like an absolute train wreck from our perspective most of the time. But God is weaving all of those things, all of those difficulties, all of those sorrows together to make a tapestry that we can't even imagine from our perspective. He's quilting something. He's weaving something that is breathtakingly beautiful that will display the beauty of our Savior for all eternity. Romans 8.28 teaches us to trust God even when we can't understand Him. Even when we don't know what it is He's doing because we do know something. 
We may not know exactly what he's doing, but we do know this, that he is working everything together for our good. He is not wasting a single pain. He is not wasting a single grief. He is using it all to build us, to conform us, to mold us, to look more like our Savior. Gene and I were members of a church in Fort Worth when I was in seminary called Wedgwood Baptist Church. Some of you may have heard of Wedgwood because a very publicized mass shooting happened there in September of 1999, just a few months after the Columbine massacre. At Wedgwood, a gunman shot 14 people at a See You at the Pole youth event in the main sanctuary of the church. Seven people were killed. The gunman took his own life in the back pew of the church. It was an absolute tragedy that rocked that community and really still marks that congregation in so many ways. Well, I was intrigued to learn the story of what happened after the tragedy when we got to Wedgwood about 2001. A few days after this tragedy, the church was still a crime scene. The leadership had to make a decision as to what they were going to do that particular Sunday morning. And they decided to go ahead with gathering and meeting in that sanctuary just four days after the shooting. They cleaned, they fixed holes in the walls, they removed pews, they tore up the carpet, and they did everything they could to gather as a church on that Sunday morning because they believed that they needed to gather more than they needed anything else in those dark days. Amidst unimaginable grief, they met in a packed sanctuary And on that Sunday morning, Pastor Al Meredith's sermon was from this verse, Romans 8, 28. I've thought about that over the years, and I don't think he could have picked a better passage and promise to preach to God's people on that Sunday morning. In the midst of a people that were scared and full of grief and sorrow, He preached God's sovereignty, that God is in control of all things. And he preached God's goodness to these people who had literally just had their entire worlds shattered. And now, 20 plus years later, that church is still a testimony to the grace of God. God has worked that tragedy in that church for the good of so many people. God did not waste that evil. God did not waste that grief. He did not waste that pain. Pastor Al Meredith has been able to travel all over the world and minister to people who are going through tragedies. They've written books from it. Family members of teenagers who were shot that night have had opportunity to minister to so many people who are grieving and hurting in the midst of other tragedies. See, friends, God doesn't waste our pain. Because our God is good, he promises to work all things together for our good Because we are his chosen people to make us more clearly reflect the glory of his son. If you don't have this truth as the foundation of your life, you will despair. In fact, believing this promise is the only way you're ever going to obey the Bible commands to rejoice in your suffering and sorrow. Like, how are you going to obey that command? How are you going to rejoice in something if you don't know that God is working it? for your good. God wastes nothing. Nothing. I urge you to believe this and to build your life on this truth. Well, the third truth I want you to see from this promise 
is really just a highlighting of the first two, and it's this. God wants us to have confidence in these truths. God wants us today to have confidence in these truths that he's in control of all things and he does not waste anything. Notice again that Paul begins Romans 8.28 with the phrase, we know, we are confident of this, Paul says. This is not a truth we question. This is not a truth we're unsure of. We know this, Paul says. We are confident of this. And God wants us to know this. He wants us to be confident. I mean, why else would he inspire this truth and preserve Romans 8.28 for us? It's because he delights when his people know that he's at work for their good in every circumstance of life. God loves when we know his purposes. He has given us this promise so that we would have rock-solid confidence that it is true. God wants this truth to be foundational to your and my life. So do you know? Do you know? Are you confident that God is at work in every single detail of your life to make you more like Jesus? Do you believe that none of your pain has been wasted Do you believe that God is even now redeeming your hurts? Is this truth the foundation of your life? Another way we know that God wants us to know this truth is because there are other passages in the Bible that make this truth just as clear. Consider one Old Testament example and one New Testament example. Of course, the Old Testament example, Landon read it earlier from the book of Genesis. We encountered Joseph. Joseph was hated by his brothers. He was sinned against in so many ways. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. He found himself in Egypt. And in Egypt, he was falsely accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife. He was in prison. He was forgotten in prison. But all the while, God had a good plan for Joseph and for his people. I'm sure Joseph doubted God's purposes in the midst of that. I'm sure Joseph bemoaned the sin and the evil that put him in the circumstances he found himself in. But after years and years, it became clear what God was doing. God allowed all of those things to happen to Joseph so that he could declare the truth of Romans 8.28. After being put in charge of saving many lives, including the lives of his own brothers, Joseph declared what God was doing. He said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Just think about what he's saying. You meant evil against me, right? There's no rose-colored glasses here. It was evil what his brothers did to him. You meant evil against me, but God meant it. God meant what? God meant the evil. God meant the sin for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. In the New Testament, we see this truth in the life and death of our Savior. As Jesus was treated wickedly and shamefully, he was scorned, he was mocked, and he was beaten, even though he did not deserve any of it. And God was at work for good in Jesus' suffering. In fact, it was in the suffering of Jesus that our ultimate good was being secured, our salvation. 
Think about the salvation you enjoy today and will enjoy for eternity. Think about the lack of condemnation and wrath you will have to suffer because Jesus suffered. All the good we have ever known and will know is all because God is a God who works terrible things for good to those who love him. And God wants us to know and delight in this promise. God wants us to know he's in control of all things. And God wants us to know he doesn't waste anything in our lives. Now, before we leave this text this morning, we have to highlight who this promise is for. You see, for most of the promises in the Bible, there's this implication that they are for those who trust in Jesus. However, in Romans 8.28, we don't even have to imply, we don't even have to guess who this promise is for. Paul tells us that it is only for those who love God. And he further clarifies those who love God by saying it's only for those who are called according to God's purpose. So just to be clear, Romans 8.28 is not for everyone. Romans 8.28 is not a promise for everyone. God has not promised that he will work all things for good for every single person. And if that's true, that this promise isn't for everyone, then I think there's an opposite side of this promise that we have to come to terms with. If you don't love God, if you aren't called according to his purposes, all things work together for your ultimate condemnation and judgment. See, because apart from Jesus, there is no ultimate good. Life and pain and suffering is wasted if you don't love God. And so this verse is not saying that we can live any way we please and God will still fix the messes we make. That's not what Romans 8.28 says. No, if you love God and engage in his design to make us more like Jesus, God will work all things together for our good and for his glory. So do you love God? Do you love God? Is he your greatest treasure? Have you been called according to his purpose? If so, rest in this foundational promise. Find refuge in this. If you love him and have been called according to his purpose, make this the foundation of your life. But if not, I encourage you right now, it's not too late Admit even now that you don't love him. Admit that you don't love him. Admit that you love all sorts of other people and things. And ask God to forgive you and to fill you with love for him. That's a prayer God loves to answer. God loves it when his people cry out, please forgive me and please help me love you like I know I should. Let's pray that together now. Oh God, we love you, but... Help us to love you more. We believe. Help our unbelief. But God, I pray for those in this room who don't love you, who may be just going through the motions or don't even claim to love you. God, I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would indeed call them according to your purposes right now. And you would give them a love for you. You would forgive them of their sin, and you would give them a supernatural love for you so that they could know this promise is true for them, so that they could know this truth, that you're in control of all things and you orchestrated all for our good. We thank you, Father, that you waste nothing 
You waste no hurt. You waste no pain. You waste no sorrow. We thank you that we can trust this in the midst of a world that seems so haphazard and random. We trust you're on the throne. We trust you're in control. And we fold our lives into the purpose that you have for us. Make us more like Jesus. We pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen.